What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Charlemagne the God here. I can't wait to see you at the Black Effect Podcast Festival coming to you live on Saturday, April 22nd at the Pullman Yards in Atlanta, hosted by myself and Jess Hilarious. If you haven't gotten your tickets, what are you waiting for? The Black Effect is bringing some of the hottest podcasts live, like the 85 South Show, Horrible Decisions, and Big Facts for one day only, okay? For inspiring podcasters, we've got you covered. If you don't want to miss the Black Effect Podcast Festival, make sure to get your tickets today at blackeffect.com. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hello, and welcome to Into the Night, a Finance Freddy's podcast. I am your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. When we last left off, we had just wrapped up the story of Finance Freddy's 4, a story of a young boy who was immensely tormented by his older brother, who seems to be his only authority figure in his life. The young child is also experiencing some form of trauma from an experience within a Fazbear restaurant, yet the animatronic mascots are the only thing he considers his friends as well. In between his hellish day life, we as observers are transported into a different realm at night, one where nightmare animatronics stalk the hall and bend reality to their will. Five nights go by, all culminating in the death of the young boy, by a prank gone too far by his older brother, on his birthday no less. Now, this is the abridged version of events, and I recommend you listen to our previous episode before starting this one, because today's episode will all be about diving into the details that make this story so intriguing. While I did my best to give an honest perspective of the game's narrative in a way that doesn't misconstrue what I'm trying to present, uh, a way that's non-biased and presented in a way similar to that of the game's, well, I won't deny the existence of a few tangled wires to the story. Okay, maybe not a few. Maybe a lot of tangled wires. Well, maybe not a lot. Maybe an absolute truckload of tangled wires. You see, it's hard to fully comprehend it now because there are answers given or solutions you can grasp onto thanks to future installments and the Word of God, a.k.a. Scott Cawthon's own input. But when this game came out back in 2015, there was, and I'm not exaggerating in any way about this, absolutely no way anyone could ever fully decipher what was happening in this game. Oh, and if you think I'm being facetious about this, think again. Even Scott Cawthon himself agrees, after the benefit of hindsight, that the plot of Finance Freddy's 4 was way too difficult to understand. Thanks to Lewis Dawkins, also referred to as Daco on YouTube, he was able to conduct an hour-and-a-half-long interview with the creator of the series. And when the topic eventually gravitated to Final Fantasy 4, 
Lewis asked Scott about his personal opinion on the divide the game created from the fanbase's endless interpretations of the game's story. His response was, quote, I don't think people were happy from a lore standpoint. It is strayed too far away from the actual story in a way. I know I'm going to get torn apart for saying this, but with Final Fantasy IV, it kind of went a little too broad. It cast its net too wide for interpretation. I guess that's the best way to say it. It went too broad for interpretation, and that left people unsatisfied. Because whereas the other ones, there were mysteries, Forges ended up too mysterious to the point where you really couldn't figure out what was going on. End quote. Side note. If you haven't watched it yet, I highly recommend any fan of Finance Friday's horror or game development to check out this interview. It was massively done by Lewis, and it provides great insight into over three years of love and dedication one man had to his series and fanbase. A link will be provided in the description below, so you have no excuse not to watch it. Except for this episode. You should probably wait to watch after this finishing this, right? But this quote from the creator, I believe, is evident enough that one could not comprehend the story without prior knowledge, as well as additional context provided by future installments. And going forward, I think it's important to know not only where I stand in regard to this game, this game provides a launching point for not only the next two games in the series, but for the entire Finance of Freddy's franchise. So it's important to clarify and classify these events and their possible outcomes and implications of the story moving forward. So, this is going to be a more relaxed episode of events, as I'm not weaving a tale or dramatizing events. A laid-back time of just discussing various theories by people to give their takes of what the creator was trying to communicate with his craft. We're not going to do any lousy metaphors or overdramatic symbolism. So we're going into the Dragon's Den of video game theories, the eldritch monster that our human minds can't fully understand. This is episode 5, Seen in the Shadows. I believe the first topic to begin with should be about the main character of the game's story, the bite victim. Now, this crying child was our main perspective of events and could possibly play a key role of... Wait. What is that? What's that sound? <sighs> Alright. Alright. Let's get the yellow bear and the pizza parlor out of the way first. One of the biggest questions this game presented when it first came out was its placement and timeline of events. The first two games had clear dates of when they took place, and the third game settings openly confirmed it takes place 30 years after the events of the first game, leaving us with three key points in time. November of 1987, August of 1993, and the distant year of 2023. So where does this game take place? There isn't a paycheck or mention of time by any character in this game, so it's difficult to ascertain. 
The child's head being crushed seems to be an implicit design decision to finally answer a mystery that has located the series since its first installment. Additionally, prior to the release of the game, Scott Cawthon had released various teasers on his website, Scott Games. The majority of these teasers were hinting or showing off the new designs of the robots, but deep diving into the source code of the website revealed a plethora of 8s and 7s. Additionally, every teaser that involved an animatronic also came with the same tagline of, Was it me? All of this evidence seems to point to this child, the bite victim, being the victim of the tragic bite of 87. I mean, that's a lot of evidence for it. What else could it be? Well, unfortunately it's not that simple. This game did not take place in 1987. You see, Phone Guy first explained the events of the Bite of 87 in the first game. One of the key things that he mentioned was, while this event did lead to the animatronics having their movements restricted during the daytime, the victim of this tragedy had lived. Uh, they used to be allowed to walk around during the day, too. But then there was the bite of 87. Yeah. It's amazing that the human body can live without the frontal lobe, you know? The fact of the matter is that the crying child in Finance Freeze 4 died after his head was crushed in Fred Bray's jaw. His final moments end with a flatline. As such, he cannot be the victim. Now, this solves one mystery, but leaves our current question still open. When does this game take place? Remember how in the previous episode I mentioned how during Nightford's cutscene, when the bite victim returns back to his home, he turns the television on to a cartoon called Fred Bear and Friends? This TV program had a copyright date, that being 1983. Final Fantasy 4 takes place in 1983, 10 years before the events of the first game. This explains why the Golden Springlock suits of Fred Bear and Spring Bonnie are still prevalent and in use. Not enough incidents had occurred to cause Fazbear Entertainment to go away with them. Which, yes, this does mean that in Fazbear Legacy, there were two times where a kid's head gets crushed inside an animatronic's jaw during the daytime. You know, it really puts into perspective the rebrand of Finest Freddy's 2. Four years after this, they had child murder spree, and they attempt to relaunch their failing pizzeria chain, and you know, I kind of have to respect that hustle. Now that we know when the story's event take place, we must ask the significance of these events. It is highly unlikely that Scott would make a story in the core part of his series that has no connection or relevance to the overall plot. So what was he trying to communicate? Let's start with our main character, the bite victim. What did in fact happen to him after the bite incident? While physically we know he perishes, he fades into a void at the end of the game. What Spike's theory is that prior to his flatline are the final words he hears. I will put you back together. I will put you back together. While this could be viewed as his subconscious giving him relief, his last moments before death being made easier by his guardian angel comforting him as he slowly accepts his fate, it could also signify that he was lingering on in some form or another. His story may not yet be over. For the sake of theoretical discussion, let's assume the latter of the events are true, and that his soul hadn't moved on yet. Well, what became of him? This is probably the most sensitive topic when it comes to this game, 
as there are various camps of thought of what the bite victim turned into. Some believe that, because of the purple shadows on the wall that lowered over him, along with his fading into darkness, gave evidence to him becoming one of the shadow animatronics of FNAF 2 and 3, specifically Shadow Freddy. Other think, others think he becomes the hallucinations that cause the chaotic events at the Fazbear restaurants, and some think he didn't die and was rebuilt and became a cyborg, and no, I really wish I was not joking about that one. But for most, who believe the bite victim lived on in some four, the two primary camps at the time released were that of the Marionetti and Golden Freddy. And while one of these has since been debunked, thanks to future content, we're going to look at this with all the evidence the fanbase had when the game was initially released. Because, really, there's ample evidence to support both lines of thought. No one can honestly say one was better than the other, as both perfectly worked. Now, the obvious answer that most would go towards would be Golden Freddy, as his Frederick plush was the closest thing to his heart, to the point that he saw him everywhere he was around. So, there's already evidence of possible supernatural happiness with the characters surrounding him. Additionally, he got his head crushed by the metallic jaws of Fredbear, giving more irony to his death that the machine that killed him was something he saw as safety, and later, something he would become. There's also an aspect I haven't talked about yet, that being the seventh night of the game. After the cutscene of the bite victim's final moment, this level becomes available. While it plays out like the previous nights, when 4am strikes, the player contends with a new threat an animatronic known simply as Nightmare, a black, ghostly apparition of Nightmare Fredbear, only ten times more vicious. And instead of wearing Fredbear's usual purple attire, he instead adorns a bright yellow top hat and bow tie. Let me repeat that, he's a black-furred, somewhat ghost-like animatronic bear with golden accessories. Nightmare's color scheme is the inverse of that of Golden Freddy where the fur and clothing are switched. Additionally, Nightmare also acts as a symbolic figure for death in the game, as when he captures the bite victim, his effects of the game are… unusual. His scream isn't the normal monstrous crowd, but instead of glitchy way. Nor does he attack the player visually, still his face is plastered on the screen as he stares directly at the player. He doesn't give you a game over screen or send you back to the main menu like the others do. He instead restarts the entire game. Let's move away from the nights and return to the daytime. You see, the case of what happened to Bite Victim is a major question with ramifications that echo throughout the entirety of the FNAF timeline. But one question that's always bothered me about this game is, well, the trauma. The child clearly has a level of stress that is not natural for a young child his age. Most could be attributed to his home life, but for reasons left unknown, some of the stress is associated with the animatronics of the location of Freddy Fazbear's. Remember what Fredbear said? No. Don't you remember what you saw? The exit is the other way. Hurry and leave. In the games, the bite victim is in a state of perturbation over the robots, more specifically at the Springlock suits. Whenever he sees those golden suits, though, 
The Fairy Plush speaks up about the dangers what will happen if they catch him. You can find help if you get past them. You have to be strong. You know what will happen if he catches you. Now, I want to point out that there is nothing concrete that can be extrapolated from this. Everything about to be listed is pure conjecture and speculation. I don't think it's unfair to wonder what was the tension here. What was Scott trying to communicate to the players? I know that Finance Freddy's is notorious for leaving hanging questions unanswered, but there's a difference between leaving something mysterious and allowing the audience mind to run wild and fill in the blanks, and violating the principles of Chekhov's gun. For those of you who don't know or just simply need a refresher, Chekhov's gun is a writing concept developed by Anton Chekhov, a Russian physician and author who lived from 1860 to 1904, and who is regarded as a master of writing short stories. In his memoirs written by Sergei Shukin, and I think I'm butchering that last name, lots of famous quote attributed to Chekhov that is often repeated and taught in English writing classes. Quote, If you say in the first chapter that a rifle is hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it must absolutely go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. End quote. What many people often misinterpret from this lesson is that every single element of the story must have an eventual payoff. But many elements to a story are there to set mood, add dimensions to a story or world, or enhance it with mystery. The world is not filled with answers, so why would fiction be the same? Now, there's a difference if you add significance to the elements of a story. In the case of The Bite of 87, which I mentioned previously, this does not break Chekhov's gun. While there is significance to the event, it is inherently paid off in the idea of the event itself. Who the victim was or what animatronic attacked a patron is insignificant to what the event does to enhance the environment and settings of the first FNAF game. It eases you into the fictional world and its environment and its setting. In the case of bite victims, apparent dread and terror he feels when confronted with animatronics, it calls those same characters and plush form his friends. I don't think it's unfair to think that something with so much significance to the story doesn't have an answer that can be found without the use of outside source material. So what did the young crying child see? One common theory surmises that the bite victim saw the missing children's incident. That, that the reason for his tear of the Springlock animatronics come from watching the Pearl Man in his spring bonnie suit lure children into the back rooms, witnessing the slaughter. This explains his fear as well as his mental state in the game. His trauma doesn't stem from just childhood abuse, but a childhood tragedy. Now, none of this has any actual proof that this is the way the story went. But I have to say, I really like this interpretation the most. Can you imagine this being the course of events, especially after knowing the direction the story went in the modern era? Crying Child was only a young boy, no more than eight or nine years of age. His mother is no longer in the picture, and his father is negligent at best. Always focused more on his work and would rather hide away in his office, which is strictly off limits, than spend it with his children. His sister has been missing, and her room hasn't been touched in months, maybe years. He doesn't remember. He doesn't know what happened to her. 
Perhaps nobody had even told him what happened to her. He still believes that she's out there, somewhere, but nobody talks about her. His only lifeline of support is his older brother, who is no more than 16 or 17, and has endured way more abuse than he had ever taken. Now, his older brother doesn't understand that. He couldn't understand the emotions that the big brother Mike had been going through. The neglect, the torments, and the full understanding of how broken his family is over the years. Down into the mix of Michael entering in his prepescent stage of life, the last thing he needs to be is straddled with a younger brother who can't stop wailing his eyes out. His younger brother's tears remind him of the beatings he took as a child, so he kept pushing and pushing him away. The young crying child's only lifeline wanted nothing to do with him anymore. But luckily, he had one place he'd call safe. A sanctuary. Freddy Fazbear's Pizza. Here, the lights emitted brightly and the sound of children laughing and parents smiling filled the room. A place that reminded him of the brighter things of life and filled him with determination and hope. Then, one day when he was playing hide and seek with his friends, he started to notice one by one his friends began to slip away. He didn't think much of it at first because, well, it was hide and seek and his friends were really good hiders. But it frustrated him that he did not and couldn't seem to find a single one of his friends. He checked everywhere, underneath the table, behind the show stage, the parking lot. They were nowhere to be seen. Only one place he hasn't checked yet. The employee's only room. He didn't know if he should enter. He was always considered out of bounds. But it was the only place left to hide. So he creeped up to the doorway and took a peek to see if he could spot his friends inside. Through the thin crack of the doorway he peered in, his vision was filled with distorted limbs and ripped off mascot heads, reported parts and fabric and tools are strewn all around haphazardly, and right in the middle of it all was Spring Bonnie. His eyes filled with fear as he watched the yellow rabbit take one of his friends limp and lifeless and stuffed them inside one of the animatronic suits that were covered in blood, as well as the rabbits. He wanted to scream or yell, but he was frozen. His anxiety and emotions locked him in place. Eventually, Bonnie turned toward the doorways and discovered the boys staring at him. The bunny suit stained with blade fingerprints and splashes of dark red. Survival instincts freed him of his paralysis and he fled the building and ran all the way home. He couldn't tell his father. He wasn't there. But there was his brother. He was in his room. He wept and wept and tried to convince his brother of what he saw. He wouldn't have any of it. He didn't believe what he saw. All he thought it was his crybeard brother was trying to get attention again. And worse, it reminded him of how he would cry when his father got home. Now, the crying child's sanctuary, the one place where he felt his heart had life, had been corrupted. Nothing was right with the world. Everywhere he turned, there was something out to hurt him, something out to kill him, to protect.
checked in for what he saw, his mind imbued a personality to his favorite plushie, Fredbear. And the Golden Bear gave him guidance and protection for the trauma, making sure that he wouldn't be hurt anymore. Making sure to know that there was always somewhere out there watching out for him. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game that lets you take command of your own team of your favorite Marvel superheroes and villains to take on interdimensional threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse in an action-packed turn-based squad-tactic RPG extravaganza. Embark on an extensive campaign, completing challenging missions as you fight your way through the expansive Marvel Universe, collect valuable loot, enhance the powers of your favorite characters, and level up to acquire new gear, unlock formidable attacks and abilities, and customize your characters with costumes inspired by the most infamous storylines. Did that get your attention? As we speak, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating its six-year anniversary. But here's the real kicker. New users signing up through our link and using the promo code MAXPOOL get an exclusive treat. You'll instantly add the Merc with the Mouth Deadpool to your roster, complete with character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, and gear. Also, please note that these sponsorships help support the production and the hours we put into creating content for you. So downloading this game, using the link in the description, and giving it a try would help out this podcast immensely. The game is free, and using the code MAXPOOL gets you a ton of free starting loot, so you got nothing but to gain for giving the game a try right now. Thank you once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. At least that's what I think originally most of the intention. Well, probably not. But maybe it was. As I said, there's no correct answer here, and... Any answer you give is bound to have some evidence that counters it. I know for a fact my interpretation isn't perfect. It's definitely not what most people believe it was what happened. But that's kind of the beauty of Finance of Freddy's 4. Scott Cawthon created a vessel in which the unknown flourished. And he did so in a way that allowed its framework to subside entirely on interpretation. Jordan Peterson has a fantastic quote on the creative process of art. Quote, the artist shouldn't be able to exactly say what he or she is doing. If you can say what you're doing, you're not producing art. Art is, well, you can say, art bears the same relation to culture that the dream does to mental stability. Your dream doesn't say what it's about, it just is. You can interpret it, and that's helpful sometimes, just like movie criticism is helpful. But the dream is something that extends you beyond where you really are. End quote. Real art is transcendent. It encourages you to think, and it may cause you to feel uncomfortable or be offended, but it's healthy. We are constrained to our finite and limited mindsets, our ignorance. Art and the theorization of art like this is why Vrafor, for all its fault, still lingers in the back of my mind ever since it came out. I've never thought back on FNAF 1 or 2 or 3 stories. They were contained and limited. But FNAF 4, well, if it wasn't evident enough, I can talk about it for hours. So let's continue exploring. Let's discuss something fun. By this point in time, you have probably noticed that, for both this episode and our previous episode, I have been separating the events of the day and night. 
Biggest reason for this is because the prevailing theory is that the young bite victim is not who we play as in FNAF 4. Instead, during the night time, he plays his older brother, Michael. Now, if you think that sounds like a retcon and a dumb one at that, you're right, it's dumb. It's one of those things that if it were true, it kind of ruins the story and it adds very little to replace it. If anything, it adds more questions than answers. The biggest and probably one of the funniest theories to come out of this debate is the theory that all the events of the night are true. Let me clarify that. There's the theory. Okay. It states that FNAF Force Knights, bear with me, with robots referred to as nightmares, with me so far, takes place in reality. Well, that is interesting. A freaking madman created robots in resemblance to an animatronic band and kept them locked up inside his house. Robots that can teleport and move at Mach 10 speed and break their already fragile laws of reality the series abides by. Well, call me sold. If you are curious as to why this theory began, it all started with the release of the second novel in the Silver Eyes trilogy. This was a novel series based off the Finest Phrase series with some key differences and it's considered non-canon. But there are elements in these stories that parallel the events of the games that are definitely worth talking about in an episode. I would say to check them out, but I respect your valuable finite time, which is more than I can say for the Silver Eyes trilogy. Okay, that is a little mean, but I would be lying if I didn't say that I didn't think these novels were a bit of a disappointment. Okay, no, that's a lie. They're bad. Really, really bad. The biggest criminal of the bunch is the second novel, The Twisted Ones, which gave birth and the precedence to the existence of androids and mind-warping technology in the Finance Freddy's universe. Yeah, it's a long, grueling story, and most agree that this is the reason the trilogy holds as much weight on the universe as the Star Wars Crystal Special has on its own canon. But a certain creation of what is known as the Illusion Disc, which alters your perception similar to that of Scarecrow's fear toxins from the Batman, this sparked a new theory of underground testing and experimentation and torture because that's how that works. Okay, I, I know I sound like a hypocrite when I criticize this theory, especially after I talked about how amazing FNAF 4 is for being a game that stories thrives off that exact thing. But at the same time, there is a limit to what can be taken seriously. There has to be a line where it becomes clear you were going too far and beyond what the original artist was thinking. Speaking of terrible transitions, FNAF 4 was updated on October 30th, 2015. Labeled Finance Freddy's 4 Halloween Edition, it was, for the most part, the same game with a few cosmetic differences. It's still worth talking about, if only not to mention the cool monsters we got in the update, such as the Orange Jacko animatronics, Jacko Bonnie and Chica, the almost spider-like Nightmare Mangle, and fan-favorite Nightmare Ion, a tentacle, almost Slenderman-esque version of the puppet with tentacle appendages in an open ribcage. He eventually be given a voice in Ultimate Custom Night by Alex Lee, and it is the stuff of nightmares. Let Teddy's death again and again and again. Ooh, that's creepy. 
None of these characters are considered canon, mind you. Well, in this instance, they are not. With the exception of Nightmare Mangle, every single new robot makes a reappearance in Finance of Freddy's Help Wanted, as characters made by Fast Entertainment for the Freddy Fazbear Virtual Experience. Nightmareon in the Darkroom levels, and Jacko, Bonnie, and Chica make a return in the Halloween DLC, The Curse of Dreadbear. None of the Halloween animatronics are real. Or at the very least, physically real. They have no conscience or input on the world. They are simply characters that were made by Fazbear Entertainment, or the in-universe developers, the Freddy Fazbear Virtual Experience. Until proven otherwise, that's all they are. There is one exception. In that same update, a new version of Fun with Plush Trap was made. It was called Fun with Balloon Boy. It featured a new Gremlins version of Balloon Boy, one with sharp, jagged teeth, a fatter head, and longer limbs. What is interesting about this is that unlike the others, Nightmare Balloon Boy was later added to the base game. Regardless of which version you play, Nightmare Balloon Boy's minigame is made available to you. This isn't by accident or just simplicity, Scott Cawthon himself stated that Nightmare Balloon Boy is canon and that is the reason he is in both versions. He apparently works in the timeline at this point. Which is... really strange. By all accounts, the toy animatronics are merely just that in 1983. Toys. Plastic figurines sold by Fathom Entertainment that they would later recycle as the base models for their new toy line of robots in 1987 during the events of Finance Freddy's 2. So, why is he here? I prefer to think the reason is that Balloon Boy was a character that was present in 1983. He wasn't part of the regular band lineup, but his presence was in the Fazbear's Mythos. He was probably just a minor character that was available in certain locations, similar to how Chuck E. Cheese didn't have the full band sometimes in certain areas. Balloon Boy was probably around if the franchisee put enough money for it. I don't have any evidence to back this up, but this is one of those theories that you just have to make your own. Every Balloon Boy being Candace pretty much an inconsequential. It's just a neat tidbit that tickles your brain to find an answer. It does have a cool voice though. In the original release and Help Wanted, it's just a distorted Balloon Boy voice, but Matthew Curtis provided vocals for Ultimate Cousin Night, and it is spectacular. <laughs> You're not so big. Just a bite-sized morsel. Matthew Kearns also has a couple song covers in which he performs as Nightmare Balloon Boy, as well as another finance for his character, Music Man. The link to his channel will be in the description below if you wish to listen. Oh boy. Alright, I have pushed this away long enough. Let's talk about this last big mystery this game has, and the one that has tormented fans for years. The biggest case of Chekhov's gun not firing. After completing Night 7 or Nightmare Mode, you will be greeted with a lockbox. Well, maybe not so much a box, but a chest. The chest has two locks on it, and clicking on them will cause them to jingle before releasing to a stationary position. After a while, a message will appear above the box. Perhaps some things are best left forgotten. For now. For over six years, this box has been sealed, 
and every now and then we have gotten a glimpse, a tease, of what could have been inside that box, but never full confirmation. Scott stated back in 2015 when the game had its first release, that he didn't want the box open anymore, saying that, quote, some things are best left forgotten forever, unquote. Ever since then, this box has been the bane of Finance of Freddy's fans' existence. Most believe that the answer to every major mystery and question is contained within this box. If only we could open it, we could learn the secrets. But alas, it remains closed. So, what do I think is in the box? Unsure. Scott himself has stated the contents within have changed over time, most likely because the story has changed over time. No answer will ever be satisfying. So I think I agree with Scott. Leave the box where it is. Don't open it and spoil the mystery. Especially if the answer isn't even necessary in the first place. Even without knowing the contents inside the box, new FNAF material has expanded the scope and characters the series far beyond what a few trinkets could do. Would I be happy if it does get opened up in the future? Sure. But do I need it opened right now? I don't think so. I don't need to know what was inside because I'm satisfied with the answers we have. Some things are best left as is. And some answers are best left ungiven. Thank you so much for listening. For our next episode, we'll be going over the next game in the main series, and it's most experimental, Finance of Freddy's Sister Location. It's my personal favorite, so I'm very excited to get it out to you guys. If you'd like to stay updated on when new episodes are going to be released, please consider subscribing or following us. Also, please consider sharing this podcast with others on social media, all of which help broaden our reach. Consider following us on Twitter at Fazbear Podcast or using the link in the description to stay updated with the latest Into the Night or Finance of Freddy's news. As always, thank you to all our current listeners and followers. Our podcast has reached over 2,500 downloads, which is a monumental. We are absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of enthusiasm for the show, and we are trying our best to get out better quality content for you as fast as we can. It's just an incredible feat that we did not expect to hit. Thank you once again for listening to the very end. And once again, I have been your host, Nick. Thank you again for listening. Good night.
In America, it's estimated that 4% of people in prison are actually innocent. When I saw them for the very first time, like I knew who my jury would be doing trial. To be honest, I knew I lost them. In 2002, the state of Georgia found Kerry guilty for his alleged involvement in a vicious rape. Only a small percentage of those people had their convictions overturned. You know, as one great justice said uh, many years ago, we don't find our witnesses from church pews. What series of events led to Kerry's wrongful conviction? Could this happen to anyone? What finally convinced the courts to overturn his conviction? From Zapier, in partnership with the Georgia Innocence Project, this is The 4%. Listen anywhere you get your podcasts or visit zapier.com forward slash resources forward slash podcasts to learn more. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.